standing, you can uh, grab your Bible once again and turn to the book of Job. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find uh, tonight's text in a chairback Bible near to you. An easy way to get to Job, of course, is you can turn pretty much to the middle part of your Bible. You'll probably be in the book of Psalms and just go back one book to the left. Uh, we pick up the story tonight in Job chapter 2, verse 11, and we are going to go all the way through chapter 3. But to get us going, I just want to read through the first part of Job's lonely lament in chapter 3. So I'll take us through verse 10 of chapter 3. So chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 10. Let's hear now once again as God speaks to us through His Word. Now when Job's friends heard all of this, evil had come upon him. They came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite. And they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth. He cursed the day of his birth. Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, A man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we ask for your help this night as we think about those dark nights of the soul, the despair and depression that can often belong to life in Jesus Christ. We do pray that you would build us up in comfort and holiness through this study of your word, that you might keep us always steadfast and persevering in our faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's somewhat well known in many of our circles that the great reformer Martin Luther had notable bouts with the dark night of the soul, what we might obviously refer to more commonly in our time as depression. And so it's not surprising that there's been this parable attributed to Martin Luther. It's a parable about Satan's striving after souls. And the parable sounds something like this. There's a time in Satan's dwelling place when a parade of demons were marching in front of him. Each one of these demons were recounting unto their leader how they sought to destroy the souls of, of saints. One demon comes up to deliver his report. 
and says, I have set a house on fire and destroyed all the Christians therein. Well, Satan responds, you may have put their bodies in the grave, but their souls are now made perfect in holiness before the Lord. Another one comes along and says, well, I drowned an entire family of Christians in a shipwreck at the sea. Satan responds again, likewise, well, you may have buried their bodies in the ocean, but their souls are made perfect in holiness. And this goes on, demon after demon, recounting the ways in which the body was crushed. When finally another demon comes at the very end, and he says, for ten long years, I have been laboring to cast this one single saint into unbearable depression and despair. And I can finally tell you, after a decade of tempting and striving, I have finally got him. In all hell, as the parable goes, erupts in triumphant shout. Because you might know, I'm sure some of you even in the room tonight, experientially and personally, the soul-sucking strength that can belong to those dark nights of the soul. These times of depression, these senses of, of grief overwhelming you to such a degree that you don't know if you can ever get up from it. And that's what we're turning our attention to tonight, largely in Job chapter 3, because uh, we get to hear this man's anguish with a degree of emotion that I'm sure really even can't come through the text appropriately. So you glance again at verse 11. You have these three friends showing up because they heard of all this evil that had come upon Job. So where do we leave off? Well, if you were with us last week at Job chapter 2, verse 10. Now, we had noticed last week these, these two cycles of suffering that belonged to Job's life. And the center point of the contention in these cycles of suffering was Satan coming into God's presence and essentially saying, if you might remember from last week, saying to God to his face, no one will worship you if all they have is you. You've hedged Job in with all this prosperity and blessedness. Of course he would worship you. No one will worship you if all they have is you. So he says, let me take whatever Job has in that first cycle of suffering in chapter 1, the Lord responds by saying, go for it, let's see. And you might remember that it's in this span of a disastrous day that Job's world comes crushing down, crashing down even before him. He loses all of his wealth in these natural disasters or raids upon enemies. Uh, the worst news, of course, is that a tornado of sorts has fallen on the home where his ten children were gathered and now he has to go do a burial service for all ten of his children. And Satan has said, well, if you let me take everything he has, he will curse you to his face. But we know in that first cycle of suffering, he didn't do that. If you glance back to chapter 1, verse 21, he doesn't curse the Lord, but worships the Lord, saying, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the summary statement of verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Failed attempt, number one, Satan. We're told it's chapter two begins. Another day comes along. Satan again is presenting himself unto this council of heavenly beings. And with surely more sneering tone in his accusation, he cries out to the Lord after the Lord says again, Have you considered my servant Job? Oh, he says, skin for skin. 
know, you let me touch all that he has, but you let me touch who he is, and he will curse you to your face. And again, the Lord says, well, let's see. And we're told, if you glance again at verse 7 of chapter 2, that uh, Satan strikes Job with these sores from head to toe. It pictures this immense suffering covering his entire body. And kids, you can be sure that when Satan gets that permission from God to, to strike Job, that he's striking him with the most intense and painful disease possible. Whatever it is, we don't know. And he adds to it this time around in the cycle of suffering. We found out in verse 9 that Job's wife even becomes Satan's advocate, saying, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Job again won't curse the Lord. You see the end of verse 10. He says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And that final phrase of chapter 2, verse 10, it's, it's helpful, isn't it, to note, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips, because if you just kind of grab your Bible and start to piece together the rest of Job as a whole, you kind of get this rather large slice of Scripture where Job continues to speak. Job continues to have language pour forth from his lips. It's still not clear by this point in the story, is it? Well, will Job actually get to a point that he does curse God in his suffering. So we're going to pick up the story tonight, some seven days after all of these calamities have fallen upon Job. As some of you might know from your own seasons of suffering, seven days after a tragedy, a week after a calamity, it is a very, very, very long time. What emotional state is he in at this moment? So we want to give our attention to Job's lonely lament, first noticing in chapter 2 his silence before we think about his shout in chapter 3. So again, we just see briefly his, his silence. You have these three friends that come from afar. You have men that we're going to soon give much of our attention to in the coming weeks, I trust. Eliphaz, Bildad, and, and Zophar. You see the end of verse 11. It's almost like they go to Job's calendar. They register an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort. But when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. At the last church where I served, one of the dearest brothers in the church was a man of a sincere encouragement, and he became a very close friend of mine. And he had just joined our church only a few months after he had received this terminal cancer diagnosis. And so from the very minute he came into the church, there was this palpable sense of eternity stamped before his eyes. And not long before he died, he had to disappear from the church for a number of weeks because the cancer was beginning to just ravage his body. And understandably, many people in the church hadn't seen him for quite some time. And I still can picture that Sunday when he came back to church for the first time in quite a while and this was a man who had last exited the church on his own feet, and now his wife is bringing him in on a wheelchair. He's frail, he's thin, almost all his hair has now fallen out. And you could see from my vantage point up there in the front of the room, all these members in the church doing this kind of double look. Is that really him? You don't recognize him. He looks altogether different, such as his suffering 
And if you ever walked through the rest of Job and and thought about his words that are going to pour forth and words that often reflect on this calamity and this suffering that's come to him, uh, what you would find is that he talks about having aching, rotting bones, dark, peeling skin, anorexia, fever, insomnia, putrid breath, failing vision, rotted and rotting teeth. He would have, to these friends, been an utter shock to behold. And so what they do is, according to many commentators, the only good thing they do in the entire book. You see what happens in verse 12 through 13. They raised their voices and wept and tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. Now, we don't know exactly is this desire not to speak to him, because as it seems in verse 13 there at the end, it was just apparent that he's overwhelmed with grief. I'm sure you may have been in your own situation where you have tried to minister perhaps to a friend, family member, a church member, and uh, the grief is so overwhelming. Their grief is so overwhelming that you just don't know what to say. Perhaps you've heard along the way, you've read books along the way that says perhaps the best thing you can do is just be there. And so you're just there not wanting to say anything, not thinking you should say anything, where clearly these friends are that way. It's quite possible, even also according to the ancient customs of this time, that it was normal in such situations that if you were visiting someone suffering like this, it was expected you wouldn't say anything until that man or that woman of their own volition began to speak. But Job's silence now leads to Job's shout in chapter 3. Now, Emily and I were recently watching you know, one of these kind of spy thriller movies that if you watch enough of those like we have throughout the years, you know there almost invariably is this scene in the movie that everything gets very quiet, longer than it should be quiet. And then you expect, don't you, that suddenly there's going to be some sort of like crashing action, a sudden sound that's meant to startle your attention. And perhaps that's exactly what's happened here with these three friends with Job for seven days. And seven nights, only grief. Surely they've seen tears pour from him. And then, one week later, Job opens his mouth. And before you race into chapter 3, what you want to recognize is that as as a reader, hearing this for the first time, reading this for the first time, there is still this great question that is out there in the story of Job. Is he going to curse God? He's not done talking yet. Is he going to curse God? And what we see as he lifts up his lonely lament, he does curse. But it's not cursing God. You see verse 1 through 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived. As we're going to find out in, in so much of Job, there are these images and metaphors that begin to pour forth from Job's mouth. But in the next 25 verses or so, all he is really saying is two simple things. His long soliloquy, his long and lonely lament, it's just got two simple parts. And verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3 is about Job's cursing. Cursing the day of his conception. And cursing, therefore, also the day that he was born. Because if you just scan your eyes through verses 4 through 6, what do you see? That he's, he's longing for darkness to have swallowed up the day in which he was conceived. For students, you might understand now, in his mind, he is thinking, if I, of course, was never born, 
I would have never experienced any of this. And so he can say, behold, verse 7, let that night be barren and let no joyful cry enter it. So he's cursing, but he's not cursing God. He's raising up this lonely lament. It's something we'll get a chance to consider throughout Job. What does it mean to lament before the Lord? What does it mean to offer a faithful complaint to the Lord? Scholars are often torn at this point in Job's story. Is this his lowest point? Is this the closest he gets to cursing God here in chapter 3? Or perhaps, like others would say, there are some other parts of Job's monologues in chapters to come where there he's really treading on the line of, of what it means to now move from faithful complaint to nothing more than sinful protestation. But in the first few verses, he's just cursing the day of his conception and birth. And then in verse 11 through the end, all he's doing is questioning why he's still alive. Well, if he had to be born, is basically what Job is saying, why did I have to stay alive? Look at verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? He goes on to say, you can kind of look through the next verses. It would have been better if I had just died. I would have joined these kings and princes in the land of of Sheol where there would be no pain, there would be no suffering, even getting down to another uh, image that he uses. You see in verse 19, he'd be like a, a slave who's now freed from his master. And so students, it's, it's good to even ask the question here in, in Job's life. I mean, uh, what, do, what do you make? What should we make of this seeming man or this man seemingly longing after, after death? Is he uh, suicidal? And I don't think he's suicidal at all. He's just offering this lonely lament to the Lord. You know, if this is what it was going to be, my lot in life to have lost everything What was the point of even bringing me forth? What was the point of of keeping me alive? That's why he can go on to say, notice even in verse 21, that there are these people who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures who are rejoicing exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. I don't know about you, if you've ever found yourself in a season of that degree of hardship, or hurt, and you almost sympathize with Job. Anything to make this disappear? Why have you not remedied this problem already? So what does he say in verse 25? For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. You know, kids, I wonder what you fear most in the world. I'm sure as you get older and the Lord sustains you and he tarries that your fears will change along the way. I'm sure many of you parents can remember things you feared as a child that you no longer fear anymore, but perhaps you have new profound fears. And Maybe some of you that are even older, grandparents, kids have all moved out of the home, maybe certain fears that you had as a child and you had as a parent now are altogether different in the stage of life. And whatever Job's precise fears are in view here, he says, the greatest fear I've ever had has come to pass. Maybe it's related to what we saw in chapter 1, verse 5, that after his children would gather together with this godly anxiety, he would offer sacrifices continually for them, lest they have cursed God in their hearts. He's saying, 
as everything has fallen apart. This is my worst fear come to fruition. And so in the original language in verse 26, it's got this very short staccato-like reality in its literalism. No ease, no quiet, no rest. Trouble comes. Maybe you find yourself in a place tonight where you might also say, no ease, no rest, no quiet, only trouble. You know, students, you want to recognize that, again, in your life, in the future, you might get to a place. No ease, no quiet, no rest, only trouble. And what must you know about God in that moment so that you, like Job, don't curse him? I think it was in 1960 that C.S. Lewis's wife, Joy, she, she died of cancer. And it was the next year that he, he published a book uh, titled A Grief Observed. And it was little more than a collection of thoughts that floated through his mind in the subsequent grief and agony uh, that belonged to his wife's death at the tender age of 45 from cancer. And he said at one point early on in the book, he said, No one told me that grief feels so much like fear. And he begins to eloquently, as perhaps only C.S. Lewis can, meditate on this fearful grief that began, and even at that moment of writing, was still consuming his heart. And he began to talk about how it was affecting his view of the Lord, because he confessed that, I don't fear that I'm in, I'm in danger of renouncing my belief in God. But here is what he said about the real danger confronting him. He said, the real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread so much is not that there is no God after all, but that this is what God is really like. A Lord who strikes calamity upon my heart. A sovereign who brings pain into my life. So what then might we learn from Job chapter 3? This lonely lament about times when this sovereign storm of suffering, it strikes the soul and Satan means for it to lead us to curse God. And God, of course, leads for it to grow in our dependence and trust upon Him, to worship Him all the way through it. What might we see from this Soliloquy, let me just give you two things that I do think Job helps us understand. Number one, God is there. God is there. Look at verse 20. He says, Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul? If you skip down to verse 23, Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? He knows, doesn't he, that God is sovereign over all things, that God has the power and the prerogative, that he alone can give light, he alone can give life. But even that language of hedged in is significant in Job, isn't it? Because it was in chapter 1. Satan says what? You've hedged him in with all this prosperity. Job now says, he's just hedged me in with all this pain. In the midst of his great grief and agony, Job still understands that central truth that God is there. God is, God is there. But 
It wouldn't be a true gospel reality, would it, if we didn't understand this second truth. God does care. God is there. But isn't it so often the difficulty for the Christian in the midst of suffering to actually believe that second truth, that God does care about the hardship. And in a way in which we can rejoice this side of the cross of Jesus Christ as we can understand that uh, we have a surety, don't we, of his comfort and kindness towards us in the midst of calamity. Because here what we have Job offering up is this cry of dereliction. And was it not the Lord Jesus Christ that on that cursed cross of Calvary, what did he say but, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that you might not be left behind in your grief, in your sin, in your agony, and in your terror. The good news of Jesus Christ, the one who has truly and only been the innocent sufferer, is that because of faith in him, you know God cares for you to such a degree that he would give his one and only son for you. So when you come to a season and perhaps a place in life where, like Job, you want to offer up a lonely lament, What you know in Jesus Christ, there's no such thing if you belong to him as a lonely lament. Because he is with you, Emmanuel, God with us. He is there. And beloved, believe that he does care. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would give us grace to see through the pain that perhaps has struck our life. The agony that has run its course into our soul to know that you continue to care for us and are compassionate towards us in Jesus Christ. Sustain us, we pray, in steadfastness, no matter our suffering, that we might always sing forth with joy and gladness, resound in trust and faith towards you, our one true God and our only anchor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.